This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. Hey, for the wild community, Ayana here, and I wanted to share a few updates before we get into our conversation. If you haven't signed up for our newsletter, head over to for the wild.world to sign up there. Also, make a donation if you can. This project is community-supported, and every contribution helps. And if you haven't rated us on iTunes, it would be really wonderful to get your feedback and hear what you think about the show. Also, we'd love to hear from you with your questions, so consider doing a voice memo and sending your questions to engage at forthewild.world, and we'll play them in our episodes coming up. All right, that's all for now. On to the show. The silence is broken by somebody crying, trying to be heard, never a word. Always the attitude, sort out your own, always alone. Wishing for something the world is denying. Out in the wilderness, somebody's crying. Somebody wishing for something to happen, wishing to tell, wishing to help. Someone was listening, someone who cared, never despaired. Someone to lean on and someone to trust. Who needs your assistance and finds your disguise? Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today we are speaking with Jorik Lubinski. Jorik is a Polish traveler and activist. And after traveling from Australia to Poland without flights, promoting the concept of conscious travel and connecting local activists from different countries, he joined the movement in defense of the last European primeval forest. Although he's mostly working for social changes, he decided to act in defense of this natural and national heritage and common sense. And we're going to be speaking about the Biewul Vieja Forest which is situated in the watersheds of the Black and Baltic Sea, straddling the border of Poland and Belarus. It is home to 20% of the planet's wood bison population, 250 bird, rare reptiles and amphibians, over 12,000 invertebrates, and 59 species of mammals, including wolf, lynx, and otter. This is the world's last forest of this type, the remaining piece of what once covered most of Europe thus symbolizing the unrestrained human drive to conquer over nature. 
In 2017, the Polish government attempted to tame it further, to the dismay of large parts of the society. It rose to be one of the main political issues of the year in this country and beyond in the European Union. Obozdia Puski, the Camp for the Forest, a grassroots, non-hierarchical, and non-logo initiative, working together with ecological NGOs, having gathered support of most of the Polish society, has managed to stop this atrocity. It has been the only movement to bring controversial state policy of the new government to a halt. My goodness, well, welcome to For the Wild Uric. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hello. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's um, it's a pleasure to uh, be able to speak about this issue and share it with your listeners. Well, I want to start us off by just sharing our gratitude for the courage of you and your comrades and for your dedication to protecting this irreplaceable old growth treasury. Thank you. Um, we're just uh, acting for the defense of common sense, as um, I wrote you in the bio, and uh, it's it's a treasure for us, this place, you know. We, us in Poland, it was the first national park in this country, and, you know, everyone here sees it as one of the symbols of our natural heritage, so we have no other choice but to defend it. I've had the honor of speaking with many indigenous to Turtle Island land and water defenders on the show, as well as activists of European descent whose lineages either fled or were transplanted from Europe long ago. And as intact land is increasingly rare and threatened, I find myself sitting with this question or with many questions uh, similar to what does it mean to stand for land your ancestors did not come from? So I'd love to set the stage by hearing of your connection to this primeval forest. And do you consider yourself native to this land that you work to protect? Well, this is an, a very interesting question. We have very high density of different um, lands and cultures that uh, dwell on them. Actually, the land uh, where the forest is, is inhabited by people slightly different to me. There is a minority of people of Belarusian descent, although they are actually, they have been there before the Polish people, but also it, it is a borderland, right? So. Even on the Polish side, in many places around the forest, the Belarusians, the local Belarusians, uh, so the Polish Belarusians are a significant minority. And then, of course, there is a lot of Polish people, but it's the second, the, the other end of the country for me. So that areas of the country are not very similar to what I've known before coming there. So it's a very interesting question because a lot of the local uh, community is actually against us. Not all of it, and there's actually more and more support for us um, and our actions there. Having said that, I must say that it is our national heritage. So we are not coming from that particular place. Most of us are not coming from that particular place, although many of us come from the area. But at the same time, we know that our whole country 
back in the history where our roots could be found was covered by such forests. And we have a lot of customs, traditions and cultural heritage that dates back to that times. So in a way, our roots, roots of all Polish people are in this forest. Not this particular plot, but from the forest that looked the same and it once covered the whole country. So that's um, more or less what I could say. It's uh, a yes and no, basically, probably. It's just remarkable to hear about forests that have been living out their natural processes for thousands of years, free from significant human disturbance. And because the vast majority of land, whether that's in Europe or North America, but honestly, all around the world really has been plowed and paved and pillaged. I'm wondering how this large stretch of forest escaped destruction for so long and what is the history of its protection? Well, this is an interesting story, actually. That places, that parts weren't very densely inhabited. And uh, this forest, same as many other forests, uh, many years private property of either kings or princes or later the emperors. And it was uh, pretty much used as hunting grounds. Along with hunting, um, very early, as for Europe, people realized that it is important to protect the animals that live there. So basically, people started mentioning it. So in some documents from about 500 years ago, I'm sorry, I can't be more precise about it at the moment, there has been found mentions about protecting the nature in this forest, which is something that was not in the uh, common psyche of Europeans back then. So they, they were using it as their hunting grounds, but at the same time, they wanted to protect the nature in their hunting grounds and make sure that there is enough bisons and other animals for uh, the future generations, even if they only had the generations of kings in their minds. And at some point, that part of Poland was conquered by the Russian Empire. So this forest was already famous as one of the most natural forests in Europe and the most abundant in animals and life. So it became a private place of the Russian czars. And in that times, some of them, some of the czars, or emperors, they really protected the place. They banned hunting and they didn't really touch it. They really wanted to protect it. And at other times they allowed for mass hunting and logging. So there were different periods of time during the uh, Russian rules. And then after World War One, people actually quickly realized that that should be the place for the first national park in the country when the idea of a national park and forest protection appeared. Actually, what happened was the forest was pillaged very much during World War One, and it was the only last place where wild European bisons dwelled. 
nevertheless, they killed the last bisons. You know, during the war, many people exploited the forest to survive. Others used the lack of strong authorities in the area to pillage it and become maybe rich or at least make some extra money. But then the bisons were, the population of bisons was recreated, if I'm not mistaken, only from specimens from uh, the zoos. And they reintroduced the bisons and some uh, scientists promoted the idea of protecting the forest and um, they made it the first natural reserve and then the first national park in Poland, uh, which took place over the 1920s and 30s. When there was also an episode of mass logging in the forest, but eventually the protection won. Thank you for taking us through that history. I was imagining all of these different hands that this forest passed through. A lot of times people reference forests being old if they're over 100 years old, meaning if the trees are over 100 years old, but it's a perfect lesson to not only classify what is old growth by the ages of the trees, because some tree species are generally shorter lived than others. You know, not all forests are like the temperate rainforest of the Pacific Coast where I live, where trees can live to be over a thousand years old. So I guess I'm wondering what defines old growth of this forest type, or we could also say what defines it being ancient or primeval forest? That's a very good question. Well, according to the Polish forestry, an old growth forest is, or an old growth tree stand is a tree stand where there is a certain number of trees which are uh, over a hundred years old. Actually in Polish the word old growth is ignored and instead people say over a hundred years old forest or tree stand. So that's according to the Polish forestry but in this forest it's a complicated issue because this forest has also suffered from centuries of pillaging, uh, but not all of it. So it has continuously existed for about 12,000 years, which here in this temperate climate is a very long time. And I think the oldest trees can be around 200 years old, if I'm not mistaken. But what actually is very important here and that's something that's really rare in Europe, is the presence of dead wood. And that's what makes this forest natural. All over Europe, people started managing forests already a long time ago. First of all, you know, the European civilization growing rapidly, it needed a lot of wood, which was the main building material for a very long time. And also they need wood for the armies and, you know, ships that let them conquer the world. And actually here, the areas of Poland and its neighboring countries were one of the main supplier of wood for a very long time. So people were basically pillaging the forests, logging, clearing them, and then of course making fields um, in their place. So what happened at some point is they understood they could finish off the wood if they don't stop. 
and they started managing forests, meaning basically making plantations. But what the plantations lack is dead wood because they don't allow the trees to grow too old because then you can't sell the wood, right? And you mentioned the countless species of invertebrates and and the lynx and other animals. They don't live in other forests because the circle of life is not closed if the dead wood is, is uh, removed. There's so many species that live off dead wood and that's what actually keeps this cycle fully natural. There's no people involved in the cycle, birth, growth, then death, and then, then rebirth in a way, right? Because a lot of organisms process this dead wood providing food to other organisms, be it fungi, invertebrates, or plants. And that's what uh, allows for new trees to grow, for the forest to regenerate. And another important thing about the dead wood is it's a natural barrier that allows for different kinds of deers and elk not to eat all the sprouts of, of new young trees. It provides shelter to many animals. It provides hunting grounds for lynxes, which, if I'm not mistaken, there's only 12 of them left in the forest. They're animals that need a big hunting territory, and they're extremely rare animals in Europe. Probably the most rare large mammals. It's, uh, it's a very important link that's missing in all other forests in Europe, or definitely in most of them, uh, and definitely at the lowlands. That's such a good point to bring up dead wood and all that decomposition brings. And it makes me think about other aspects of forests that are oftentimes overlooked. You know, for instance, when we talk about intact forest, one of the aspects that is often left unemphasized is the global rarity of undisturbed soils. And I was so struck when reading mm -hmm. about the high diversity of fungi and saprophytic invertebrates in this forest. And I want to bring the repository of ecological knowledge that these ancient soils hold and ask about the irreversible degradation that you've seen the logging operations and industrial machinery bringing. Let's first mention that uh, this mass logging that happened last year was done under the pretext of removing dead spruces, which had been previously infested by the bark beetle. Uh, so a large portion of spruce trees died in the forest, which is connected, amongst others, with uh, anthropogenic climate change and with uh, things like drying out swamps in the area. So the water level, the underground water body lowering its um, levels. So what happened was many spruces that had been previously planted 
maybe in the 19th century, maybe at the beginning of the 20th century, others growing there naturally died. State Forests claimed, State Forests is a big Polish state company that manages a vast majority of the forests in the country. Uh, there's not many private forests here. So they claimed that they have to log these trees in order to slow down or stop the spread of the beetles so they wouldn't kill other trees. Meanwhile, they were taking away logging and taking away spruces which were dead, so no longer infested by bark beetles. And of course, they were going for sale. And very often they were sold for very cheap, low quality products. As a result, there was a lot of big clear cuts. They brought uh, huge, heavy harvester machines. There's actually two machines that work in pairs. There's a harvester and a forwarder. So what happens is the harvester grabs a tree, cuts it down within two or three minutes, takes the branches away and cuts it into a few meters long logs. And then a forwarder comes and loads it onto its uh, tray or whatever it is and puts it up in piles. So some of these piles were five meters high and maybe 40, 50 meters long. There were many of them. It was an incredibly sad view to be walking or cycling along the roads on and paths of the forest and being in really beautiful places. And then suddenly, as if some gate opened, you see a landscape like from World War One photos, you know, it was it looked like a like a battlefield of some extreme long battle and there was no trees whatsoever. There was these huge long piles of wood and really deep trenches, basically, that's what you can call it. I mean, the marks left by the heavy machinery, especially if it worked in the rain, sometimes you could just swim there, you know, it was such incredible destruction. And as you mentioned at the beginning, I am not someone who had been previously involved with uh, ecological actions. I do love nature, I do love forests, but I think I do love them as much as anyone, uh, as any person who has been in touch with nature. I'm not some amazing uh, nature lover who just uh, focuses on nature extremely much. I'm, I just respect nature very deeply as anyone uh, does, I think. And, you know, despite not having so much previous involvement with these kind of things, Oh, let me tell you a story. When I first came to the camp for the forest, I on the second day, I wanted to see some undisturbed, beautiful forest. And I was recommended to go to a place which was maybe three kilometers away, so just around the corner, just to see how the forest looks undisturbed. It was a really nice, beautiful area. And then about 10 days later, I decided to just have a ride in the same area. I knew that some logging had been uh, undertaken in, in that place. 
But what I saw was a completely different forest. I'm actually, it wasn't a forest. It was another battlefield. But I wouldn't even find my way there if not the GPS, because everything changed completely. And actually, in that places, it's um, the clear cuts. They're quite thin. They're actually they're really wide. They're like two hundred meters wide on both sides of roads, but they're really long. Because the state forest at some point changed their strategy and they started logging along roads under the pretext of providing public safety. So what they did was in some places they had to, well, they actually made roads. They took small paths where, you know, you could maybe cycle, but it would be almost impossible to drive along it. And they cut, again, really long, wide stripes of the forest around these paths that then became uh, roads because all the heavy machinery was taking them back and forth every day. So it's it's a heart-wrenching view. It's really it's really terrible. Again, people who are not a nature activists, you know, many people started coming just as tourists to the forest last summer just to see what's happening. Also, as big city people who uh, were not normally involved in some such actions and maybe had never been to this particular forest uh, previously and they were also crying, you know, seeing what was happening. So, yeah, it's a, it was a very strong emotional experience for many of us. I really appreciate hearing your personal stories from being at the camp 
for the forest. And I have a lot more questions, technical questions about the forest and the government and whatnot. But I also feel intrigued to ask you about the social and organizational dynamics of the occupation. Mm-hmm. What helped keep the community stay cooperative and unified and what can you share about your tactics? Well, in the beginning of the existence of Camp for the Forest, which basically came to exist when uh, people gathered to block some of the logging. It started May, uh, in the end of May last year, after a very long action of trying to stop the logging or uh, prevent the logging using you know, let's say political ways. So trying to um, act on uh, the state forests to uh, withdraw the ideas of uh, mass logging the forest, which failed, we were completely ignored. People gathered there and they sat and they talked, uh, sharing the, their experiences from different uh, actions some of them were people who were really experienced with ecological actions. Others had experience from different um, movements, be it uh, anarchistic or some protest movements about different issues. They decided that a non-hierarchic grassroots, no logo camp where everyone would be equal. There would be no one who can wear logos of their organizations, no one whose voice would count more than others. And uh, people who would gather every night and talk about their plans and strategy would be the best uh, way to organize this. And it worked really, really well. It's um, amazing when you're organizing something where everyone can come if they only feel the good of this forest uh, is important for them. So it's not a movement that welcomes only people with some specific worldviews. It's a movement for everyone. It's It's not a movement of some, you know, uh, radical fighters. It's not a movement of young men or young women or, you know, any specific social, economical age group or gender group, nothing like that. It's open for everyone from any country around the world who wants to come and help protect this forest. Some people might want to come for four days. Some people might uh, come forever until the forest becomes a national park. That's our main aim. Everybody's welcome. We talk every day. We discuss our strategies. We discuss our different ideas. We evaluate and everybody can share their ideas or opinions. An opinion of someone who has just arrived is also really valid and listen to, and that creates this amazing, almost uh, utopic uh, atmosphere where everyone can come, and even if they have no experience whatsoever in anything 
uh, any similar actions or projects can find something they're good at because nobody tells anyone what to do and it's actually you know coming somewhere where, where there's no uh, strict discipline where there's no orders there's only questions who can do this and that we need people to do this and that who would like to volunteer for that you know and then there's maybe some work groups that uh, appear from time to time to work on some specific task and maybe such a work group can have a leader but this person next day maybe the same person is uh, doing the dishes for everyone you know so um that's really amazing because it's um allows talents of every single person to be not only found often by this person because it often happened that someone discovered something themselves they were not aware of and these talents can be utilized in order to really do something for the protection of the forest and also we don't have situations when uh, there is someone from some very big ecological organizations let's say or a political party or something and you know maybe they are someone important in some circles somewhere and nobody knows that because they can't wear a logo they can't be saying oh hello i'm this and this person from this and this organization i'm the head of this and this department or something so again this creates an atmosphere of uh, really good cooperation between people and what often happened there was that we got to know each other pretty well before finding out who we are so what happens in let's say normal uh, everyday life is when you meet someone you exchange first your names and then probably your professions or your origins like where are, you, where are you from? What do you do? Right? That's the questions we ask to each other normally. But there, you would spend five hours with someone crawling in the forest at 4 a.m. in the rain, and you'd have a lot of different experience with this person. And only then, maybe after a few days, maybe after a few weeks, you would find out what this person does in their daily life. And maybe it would be I don't know, just being a student, or maybe it would be being a head of a major organization that's, you know, making an important impact in the country, or maybe something in between or something completely different. But um, I think this form of organization where you have no bosses, uh, people, they create their self-discipline, but there's no discipline coming from above. This creates initially a bit of chaos, but then this chaos is quickly transformed into something extremely efficient and very effective and long lasting. And it's been uh, over half a year for me that I'm involved in this movement. It still keeps amazing me. I can't stop praising it, basically. <laughs> oh, I love hearing about the inner social workings. It's really uplifting and just inspirational but there was this one thought that kept sneaking into my mind of have you had any problems with infiltrators or people who are coming in pretending to be for the forest but are really just trying to gain information 
That's a very good question. We've had such people, but they felt really uncomfortable <laughs> being surrounded by maybe 30, maybe 50, maybe 100 people who are really uh, devoted to the cause. And they would just come for one day, try to ask questions about some things that we were rather trying to keep secret and leave the next day because my, my theory is that they just couldn't, couldn't stand this um, being these agents there, you know, <laughs> being these infiltrators. Well, maybe they were just not trained well enough. I think the devotion we had to the cause was too strong for the infiltrators to be able to fully join the community and then really find out uh, some secret information. The militarization of the police state here in the United States seems to be growing only more extreme, especially in regards to activism. And I'm curious to hear about how the atmosphere of Poland or Europe compares. Is there a greater culture of resistance or network of support for activists who risk their freedom and safety in dedication to land preservation? I think we are lucky at this time, at this moment now, we are lucky to be living in a place where the police can't go far beyond their rights uh, to act. Poland was a communist state until almost 30 years ago, and it was a state with quite brutal police, with the constitution being ignored by the authorities, by the laws being really disrespected by the police, by the ruling class, by the ruling party. This met really big resistance. And people in Poland still remember this resistance. And they know that they can't allow the police to go beyond their jurisdiction in their actions. So luckily, the police wasn't treating us very bad. They're not really militarized here. Nevertheless, we had a very bad experiences with, well, a bit with the police. I'm not saying it was good, but from what I hear about what, how uh, such actions look in Germany, for example, I don't know details about the United States, just what we hear from the media. But basically, there is the civic society here is on the rise now with the new right-wing government we've been um, having since 2016. We are looking at their hands. What was really helpful for us was, uh, you know, Facebook live streaming, recording everything, and the interest of the general society in the cause, which I hope to get back to in a second. But basically in Poland, state forests being such a big state corporation, they also have their own forest rangers who have the right to, for example, refuse people to stay in the forest when a ban on entering a forest is issued. And that's what they were doing. A lot of time they were just 
closing the forest, meaning just putting signs on every road and path that enters the forest, that the entry is forbidden for a specific span of time. And then they have the right to remove you from this place. And what happened was they were using a lot of brutal force and they were going well beyond their jurisdiction. But they still had to at least, you know, in the social and political situation that we have now and people being really, there is many movements basically uh, that are trying to make sure that this state stays democratic as much as, well, in the law, unfortunately, it's becoming undemocratic and the police actions are worse and worse. But there is a lot of lawyers and activists, journalists registering as much as of unlawful actions as possible and publishing them. So at least the state forests had to, you know, they couldn't just come and beat people up or use gas spray, uh, pepper spray or something like that. Uh, but they were acting very brutally with verbal violence and physical violence because what our strategy was basically chaining ourselves to the machinery. We were using, oh, that's one very important thing I forgot to mention when talking about our structures. We were using only nonviolent direct action, nonviolent protests. So it was very important for us also not to damage the machines because they are public or private property. And we think that acting against it is violence. So we tried in order to, our main strategy for, except uh, some working within um, the laws and informing people, educating, our main strategy was halting the logging by chaining ourselves to the machines or staying in the way of the machines so they couldn't approach the, the trees and things like that. And very often they would use indirect violence. For example, they were always leaving the machines on with, you know, they have big engines. Sometimes they would direct the machines in a way that the fumes would go in our faces. So with this noise, uh, as I said, verbal violence and, you know, twisting our hands and legs and, you know, using big knives just next to our faces to cuts of uh, some ropes or something that we were using to to stay in the place it was it was very very heavy it was very difficult and it was extremely important to us that the society would keep stay informed with what's happening uh, so we are trying to live stream all the actions now we are fighting in courts with state forests so it's a big law battle at the moment. They are filing hundreds of court cases against us, which are usually fines they send us for staying in the forest, even though we were asked to leave and things like that for trespassing, basically. I'm not sure if it can be called trespassing, but, you know, disobeying the ban on entry to a particular plot of the forest. But we are also uh, suing them for being brutal towards us and uh, exceeding their jurisdiction. So, you know, it could have been worse if we didn't have the support of the society. 
and it could have been worse if officials, the meaning state officers of the state forests and the forest rangers and the police didn't have to stay more or less within limits of some common sense with their actions. It could have been much worse if, for example, the forest was somewhere really far away from towns and cities and there was no phone signal, so we wouldn't be able to uh, make uh, live transmissions from the events. So we have been being persecuted by the police unlawfully, but luckily, you know, without a threat to our life and without any major injuries or, you know, the worst things that happened where we were arrested, some of us, uh, although that wasn't happening very often. And for example, kept in jail for 24 hours. Um, there was one really scandalous issue when people were denied food and access to a lawyer really unlawfully for for many hours after a protest. So yeah, there has been definitely there has been breaches of the law. Um, but in the context of uh, militarization of the police in the US, it's uh, it's definitely not as bad. So yet. <laughs> So we are lucky uh, when it comes to that. One, you've mentioned a few times the designated forest versus protected areas or logged forest versus protected areas. And here in the United States, protective land designations can also be confusing because we have wilderness areas and national parks and mm -hmm. the National Forest and Bureau of Land Management land. And these titles can be misleading because... For example, in some of these lands, logging can happen, mining can happen, oil extraction, mm -hmm. hunting can happen. So I'm interested to talk about the various jurisdictions that the Biolwo Vieja falls under as the forest yeah. extends in both Poland and Belarus and has been deemed a UNESCO World Heritage Site and then encompasses areas protected under the EU's Natura program which, as you mentioned, it's one of the largest coordinated networks of protected areas in the world, actually making up 18% of the EU's landmass. So I know you've touched on this throughout the interview, but if you could just elaborate on the complexities surrounding the forest protective designations, and then I'd love to hear how that fits into the visions for expanding the protection of other primeval forests in Poland or neighboring European nations. When it comes to this forest, on the Polish side, there is a national park 
which uh, comprises just around one sixth of the Polish area of the forest. And the rest of the forest is under the management of the state forests. Uh, the management, not ownership, because according to the law, the state forests manage public property in sustainable ways, according to the law. Within the national park, there is something really unique as for the whole country, it's, which is a strict reserve. That's a place, a large area, where only people employed in the national park and scientists can enter. So no tourists can ever enter this zone. There is just one specific place where a tourist can enter uh, the zone with guides and the guides being employees of the national park. So it's really amazing that these places are really undisturbed by humans because apart from one path where tourists can enter in small groups under the eyes of, of the employees of, of the national park, the forest there is really undisturbed. Then in the uh, area um, under the state forests, there are so-called managed forests and forest reserves and also some reference areas. So luckily, even though they had been tried, they had been there had been talks about allowing to log or at least for the allowing for the heavy machinery to enter the reserves, no logging has taken place there except some single trees. So what we're talking about is the rest of the managed forests where uh, it is allowed to hunt and it is allowed to log within some quotas. As I mentioned before, the quotas were um, changed significantly, allowing for the state forests to log more. Um, and now they're working on quotas for the future, so we never know what will happen again, but um, for now it's good. But um, yeah, these, these really precious forests are under the management of, um, of the foresters, of the state foresters there. And yeah, the hunting is an issue as well, uh, because as I mentioned, they can uh, make quite good money on the licenses. Um, and, you know, they also have very, they're very respected by the local communities because first of all, they're paid really a lot of money. So they're really rich compared to the other people who live there. Second of all, you know, the foresters always represented the kings, right? And, uh, or the princes or the emperors there. So um, there is this issue. And then on the Belarusian side, the whole forest is a national park um, that actually comprises 60% uh, of the whole forest. And large portions of it are also strict reserves. Then when it comes to other forests in Poland, we have a few forest national parks and we have a few relatively untouched forests 
although they have been um, modified by humans, uh, let me use this word modified, much more than uh, the Białowieża forest. But there are movements to extend uh, some national parks, to create new ones, because obviously the state forests are not fulfilling uh, the law. They're not uh, managing the public property sustainably always. So it's very lucky for us now that the society understands much more about what is an old growth forest, what is a primeval forest, what is a forest with uh, primeval features. And um, hopefully there will be more movements and more actions um, that will allow for the most precious parts of uh, the forests uh, under the management of the state forests to become national parks. Um, and I hope that the state forests will uh, gradually uh, change their approach. They are trying to be modern. They are, um, you know, in the Polish society, there has been um, uh, an ethos of foresters. They have been really respected by the whole society uh, because they're managing forests, which we love in general. Um, and they've been working for the nature, right? Well, unfortunately, they completely destroyed this image last year, unfortunately for themselves. Um, now people know that they are not working sustainably, that um, they are overfeeding animals in order to hunt them down right later, that they are logging in uh, remainings of precious forests. And the problem is that the forestry education is quite old fashioned. So I hope that they, they will redirect some of the money they, they've been uh, putting in creating good PR and trying to counter our education by, by their propaganda on um, how logging is good for us and you know things like that. Because it's ridiculous. They've been producing a lot of really modern materials uh, games and um, animations and uh, funny uh, vlog videos and you know things directed to the youth to convince them to that state forests are doing a great job but I hope they'll redirect some of this money to update their education for the next uh, generations of foresters to really act uh, in much more sustainable ways in our forests. Thank you so much, Yorick. This has been an incredible education. <laughs> so much yeah. information from the political and social dynamics, the ecological dynamics. It's a very complex situation. And I can say for the whole For the Wild team, we're so grateful to have you and the others standing for this forest that many of us may never visit but the fact that it's still standing and it's evolving autonomously and that there's people who are willing to risk their safety and their comfort to stand for land 
is inspiring to all of us. So deep gratitude for you and the others. Thank you very much. And uh, well, I hope that our struggle will not only help save this particular forest, but uh, hopefully some of the methods we managed to develop and some of the information I told you here now about acting together with the society and about um, our way of organizing ourselves. Well, I hope they can be an inspiration for uh, similar movements around the world. We're also very happy to exchange uh, ideas and methods. And yeah, please come and visit us. We are very excited to see you in the Ovieża. Thank you for listening to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. The music you heard today was Warsaw Village Band with Capella Ziwizi Warzia and Semzuki with Akmoj Borzi. I'd like to thank our incredible team, our producer and editor, Andrew Stores, research director, Madison Mogolski, and media director, Molly Lebov. Our theme music is Silence Returns by Bo and Like a River from Kate Wolf. Thank you so much, and until next time. Drifting all the